Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's an honor and pleasure to have you here today. In this podcast, I endeavor, as many of you know, to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. That includes the highs, the lows, the plateaus, the warts and all, and the bliss of practice and spiritual life. And um, on that theme, in this episode, I'm republishing a conversation I had with my Dharma friend and I would say, intellectual hero of sorts, um, this writer named Robert Wright. And I should say that this this episode was first published on Bob's podcast, the Non-Zero podcast, about a month ago. If you don't know Bob's work, um, he's a public intellectual who writes about evolutionary psychology, um, human history, human social interactions, global international relation, relations, and modern psychology through the lens of uh, Buddhism. Very interesting thinker. Um, I had a series of conversations with him in 2021, so if you're interested, do check those out in the archive. But recently we taped a conversation um, about cognitive empathy. Bob's working on a new book called, I think it's loosely called, The Radical Power of Cognitive Empathy. And cognitive empathy, um, just to clarify, is not it, what he, he, it's not emotional empathy. Emotional empathy being when you feel what another person is feeling. Cognitive empathy is the ability to imagine what another person is feeling or how they see the world. Um, and the, the two can go work together, um, but for our survival, meaning the species survival, part of Bob's thesis is that humanity needs to go through a kind of cognitive revolution or a revolution in human psychology whereby a greater percentage than is happening now, but a greater percentage of, of the species is able to exercise cognitive empathy. And where he and I really connect is our shared conviction that meditation practice, specifically mindfulness practice, is a way of of training one's ability to exercise cognitive empathy. Now, the irony is, as a meditation mindfulness teacher myself, in this episode, what I'm sharing is my struggles with practicing cognitive empathy, how my, uh, particularly when I'm under stress or when I'm really held within a strong conviction or swayed by a perceptual distortion or a cognitive bias, when, um, when I'm just not seeing things clearly, uh, I, I was, I'm sharing in the episode how easily I found it for cognitive empathy to degrade or to just be unavailable. And unfortunately, that creates a lot of conflict. It can create a lot of conflict uh, personally, but really interpersonal type of conflict. And that's what I sh we talk about in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. I'd love to hear your thoughts about cognitive empathy in everyday life. Um, after you're listening to this chat, if you have... Uh, your own uh, stories or your own experience with it. I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at josh at joshsummers.net. But do check out Bob's newsletter, the non-zero newsletter on Substack. And there's a link for you in the show notes on that, a link to Bob's podcast, the non-zero podcast, and to uh, his, his great newsletter, the non-zero newsletter on Substack. Okay, without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode on my cognitive empathy struggles with Robert Wright. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you? 
I'm not complaining as usual. Um, I'm, and I don't mean to suggest I have anything to complain about. I'm not saying that. But anyway, let me introduce this. I am Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero podcast. You're Josh Summers, noted meditation teacher and yoga teacher. Uh, as one might infer from the foliage behind you, that that's uh, people may not be able to see this because because the the extremes of your frame will get cut off in the in the production part. But those are lovely plants to your left and right. All the uh, the decorative design of my partner for our yoga studio. I see. So are you in your yoga studio at that? This are, yeah, this is the this is the studio we we shoot from for uh-huh. our online classes and stuff. Okay. So, uh, regular listeners and viewers may recognize you. Uh, you've been a guest repeatedly. We've talked through a lot of things, often having to do with meditation um, and uh, related matters and life generally. Today, we're going to talk about life generally. We're going to focus to some extent on cognitive empathy. That is just the challenge of understanding how other people view the world, which isn't the same as empathy in the more conventional sense of kind of feeling their pain, identifying with their feelings. Um, It's just kind of perspective taking. And we're going to try to situate that subject in the challenge of like living a life. In other words, I mean, I've talked in the past about how it could help, I think, geopolitics if if, say, uh, the leaders of various nations were better at understanding the perspectives of people in other nations. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think this also has relevance to our lives. And I, I think you I think you agree. And I think you agree with me that it's a challenge to apply these uh, these things in real life. Are you with me so far? I'm definitely with you. That's why I reached out after your newsletter i think what you solicited maybe domestic personal uh interpersonal ways in which people may uh experience lack of cognitive empathy or cognitive empathy deficit disorder um and um when i read that i i've been feeling this for a while but i think i'm kind of a a lab rat slash canary in the coal mine for for your your very enterprise in that um i live in a, in, a, in a with the pandemic my life got went into an upheaval and things have settled now but i'm living in a very different set of circumstances than i was living in the past i as you mentioned i was a, a teacher a yoga teacher and i was traveling around giving seminars and workshops and trainings and things like that and the pandemic kind of cleared all that out, um, or killed it. Um, and my, I also came out of a a marriage at the beginning of the pandemic and got divorced and, uh, relocated, resettled with, uh, my partner, uh, in Maine, but we're in a rural, um, sort of setup. And one way of describing it, and, and you might, this might land for you, but we both practice at the insight meditation society. And behind the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, there's a smaller retreat center for long-term practitioners. And our place in Maine feels like a, a miniature version of the forest refuge. Long driveway in, lots of snow around, lots of trees, no visible neighbors. Um, 
in some ways, idyllic, perfectly idyllic conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the partnership itself is a deep love, one of the deepest loves I've ever known, if not the deepest. Probably, uh, and and yet, even within the, I, those idyllic circumstances, I've been very aware of what can happen when a capacity for cognitive empathy is lost, and uh, really painful cycles of conflict can kick up. Mm-hmm. And and I've been looking at that. Uh, doing postmortems on conflicts with my partner, trying to understand it more. I've been in therapy, in couples therapy, trying to work through it, seeing what the roots of it are, um, and and really trying to apply, and the irony here, which I think you might empathize with, but the irony of applying the very thing you're talking about. So you, you preach cognitive empathy, and I know in your book, Why Buddhism is True, you, nothing makes you lose cognitive empathy more when you perceive someone else not being cognitively empathic and you get frustrated and tribalistic about it. Um, the irony here is I teach meditation and mindfulness. I've been Let in me just, that, That's an interesting thing I, that I, we should just freeze frame on for a second is the way there can be a chain reaction of, of lack of cognitive empathy because to the extent that, that someone, um, by virtue of failing to understand your perspective, antagonizes you, um, you will put them more and more in the kind of antagonist category, maybe not all the way in the enemy category, but there will be tension. And, and to the extent that that happens, you may have trouble exercising cognitive empathy, uh, understanding where they're actually coming from. Now, why that is a long story. I've written about it a little bit. It seems to be part of human nature that our capacity for accurately understanding people's perspectives uh, can vary tremendously depending on what kind of category we're putting them in. Is it a friend or an ally, a close friend, ally on the one hand, enemy rival on the other, something in between? Uh, Any position on this spectrum can bring distortions of a certain kind, but in a way the most uh, dramatic and explosive, I think, are as you start moving toward the antagonist side, the kind of enemy rival. So there, I just that's just an interesting point that there can be this kind of uh, positive feedback cycle, positive feedback being a misleading term to the extent that it suggests anything good because the, the outcome is bad. Uh, but let me just, uh, I just want to interrupt you and, and, and drill down on that. But it's it's an interesting, that's an interesting point you made. So, so anyway, now you Please. may. Well, yeah. And and where I was going is the irony is that, you know, I've been involved in embodiment, yoga world, mindfulness world for a while. Um, and, and yet the, the protocols of, of therapy and, and, and practice that have been prescribed to me in a way are the very things that I teach. (laughs) So I've, I've eaten a bit of humble pie, um, quite a bit of humble pie and, um, and just, I feel like I have a, just a deeper appreciation for the the, the obstacles to cognitive empathy, yeah. the kind of the, the mind states, the emotional states, and the per- misperceptions that that lead to uh, yeah. es- escalations. And, you know, that's an, that's an interesting thing in its own right, because as you said, you and I have both done you know long, at least in the sense of a week or longer uh, meditation retreats at the Insight Meditation Society. And at any of these retreat centers, there's almost an unspoken assumption that the teachers totally have their shit together, right? 
I mean, that's part of the presentation of self. They're not, tr- you know, and yet, you know, it's not true. Uh, and 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 in fact, I would say it's often the case that the people drawn into the practice uh, most intensively often have the biggest issues to work out. If, if, if you're you know, if, if, if you're living the perfect life, you're probably not going <laughs> to you know subject yourself to the the various discomforts associated with a, a long term meditation retreat. Uh, much less the ongoing kind of daily practice you need to follow that up with if you're going to, you know, try to hang, s- sustain some of the progress you made. Um, so anyway, th- th- that's another uh, another little fact worth noting. The, the truth is there are always these, uh, and you know, it does come out, you know, like when Joseph Goldstein, a co-founder of, of the center, along with Sharon Salzberg and, and so on, um, uh, the Insight Meditation Society, uh, you know, talks about the, the role that fear used to, you know, how just the problem of fear in his life was such a big challenge for so long. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it recurs, you know, we all know these things you, you continue to grapple. Uh, so anyway, uh, sorry to interrupt you again, but there are these, you're bringing up these interesting little things that I think it's, it, it, it's good to think about. And in this case, just that everyone has their, their struggles. Right. And and in your naming, the the challenge of anyone that tries to share these teachings around how do you present it in a way that people can connect with? But, you know, as you know, it's I, I think teachers don't necessarily want to overshare their own personal mess because, you know, it, 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 then it creates this very odd dynamic with with students too, where the students might be feeling like they need to take care of you, or um, or something like that. But the flip side is also what you, I think you were naming in the beginning around the projection students will have on the teacher, like mm-hmm. oh they're they're up there, so they've figured it out, or they don't they don't have that problem. And um, the line that always comes to me is uh, the one of the monks that would teach at IMS, Ajahn Sachito often would say when someone would talk about their anxiety, talk about their fear, talk about their self-loathing or shame, he'd say, sounds like me. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh, I mean, <laughs> I've gotten feedback from people who are kind of surprised when they hear uh, my podcast, how animated, I guess, would be the euphemism for the way I get sometimes. <laughs> but they're like, wait, I thought you were... I thought you were this mindfulness guy. Uh, there's a reason I had to get interested in mindfulness. Um, but that, but if I may, that also speaks to projection about what people think mindfulness will do. Right. And if, if people think mindfulness is going to take away their symptoms directly or, um, you know, magically, then just because you go on one retreat or you take up a practice and suddenly your stress is going to, you know, vanish or your anxiety issue is going to vanish, like that is just... That's Pollyannish, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. So, um, the l- l- let me let me before we get back into your story, uh, mention one more thing. So, as you said, you know, you were responding to uh, a post I did in the Non-Zero newsletter, in which I invited uh, people to submit comments through uh, or questions about this subject through one of two avenues, either in the comment section, which is open to paid subscribers, or just by emailing uh, emailing us. And uh, I, 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 first of all, was surprised by how many people 
uh, came from a mindfulness background. I mean, it seems like at least at least half of them were automatically situating the challenge of cognitive empathy in that context. Um, and the other theme was that a, a couple of these people talked about the connection between um, self-exploration and becoming more aware of the way your own mind works and cognitive empathy and arguing that uh, the kind of understanding of your own internal dynamics that mindfulness can bring can be helpful in the realm of understanding others. And and I realized for the first time something that I, I think is just worth throwing out there, which is that there are two very different meanings of self-awareness that have different connections to cognitive empathy. Normally, when we say that person's not very self-aware, what we really mean is that is just a statement about their lack of cognitive empathy, because normally all we mean by that is they don't understand how other people are perceiving them. If you look at the way the term is usually used, used you know, oh, he's he's just totally lacking in self-awareness. We mean like he didn't realize like that joke didn't work or or people thought he was an asshole. I think usually, you know, lacking in self-awareness uh is actually a statement about awareness of other people's minds as those minds relate to you. However, the, could, the, it, could it also yeah. be, you know, lack of the statement, they're not self-aware, uh, also mean they just don't see the world the way I see the world. I think that's part of it too. They don't, they, they're not seeing things the way I see them. So they're not self-aware. Well, what, what would be, what would be an example I mean, normally, if I I would just say they're clueless if they don't see the world the way I see it. Um, I, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think. Well, let me let me say just the other half. Of what I was going to say was that uh, this the the kind of self awareness that these commenters and 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 uh, correspondents were talking about was more about actual internal observation. And self-awareness is actually ironic in this context because ultimately, according to Buddhism, which is where the, you know, the which is what the concept of mindfulness is associated with, there in some sense is no self. And in fact, observing your internal dynamics leads you to realize that this, this thing you had thought of as the self, this, this you know, solid, persistent thing um, is nothing of the sort. Uh, so there's that irony. But still... Uh, Loosely speaking, what these people are suggesting is that becoming more aware of the self, self-awareness of that sense, become more aware of your internal dynamics can help you understand how other people are seeing the world, what's going on in their minds. And um, that's kind of true. It's not it's it's actually not the main way I would have said that mindfulness can be conducive to cognitive empathy. I would have said that mindfulness can lead you to uh, relax your judgments about people. And I know one of the people who wrote in, maybe we'll come to it, uh, uh, mentioned mentioned that very uh, explicitly. The the uh, the idea that relaxing judgment is is a prerequisite for um, for understanding people, but. I think that's one of the main contributions mindfulness can make to cognitive empathy, but that's different from from what these people are suggesting, uh, which is that understanding the way your own mind works through mindfulness uh, 
can can help. So that's does that? Yeah, no, and I could we could jump off a few of those those themes. Being aware, I mean, one way I would paraphrase it back is being aware of becoming more aware of my own internal process, how my mind works, how my mind perceives things, how it takes sense data, turns it into a story, uh, projects you know, intention that may or may not be there and with it, with the outside actor, becoming more aware of that process in some ways um, makes me more skeptical around my own certainty. So in, in a way, certainty is the sin. Certainty, when I feel really certain, I can now see in hindsight in those instances when I'm the, the moments I'm most certain are when I'm most vulnerable to not being able to, to see things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, I think sort of related there. And then, so the, the stance that gets adopted is more of inquisitive curiosity around just asking an open question. Well, what is it like for you? How are you, how are you seeing this? And, and then being able to reflect that back to the satisfaction of the interlocutor so that they feel like they've been hurt all of that stems from awareness of internal process. Mm-hmm. But then the, I don't know if you've gotten into this, but the cognitive empathy, it, the way I look at it now is also that it's a, it's an activity. You know, it's a, pro, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process that you're engaged with. And part of the process is uncomfortable because to to truly exercise it, you have to sit, I often have to sit with difficult sensations, difficult feelings that scream at me to say something else, to do something else. Well, what can you, I don't want to invade your privacy too much, but is in, it possible in, to put a little more flesh on the kind of thing that would be? So I've, I've been, in anticipation of this call, I've been trying to figure out how to distill it down in a nutshell so that it gives a sense of the punch, but without maybe necessarily going overboard with TMI. Um, so what I mentioned living in more or less solitude with my partner, teaching, working, we're, we're living by cheek and jowl, doing everything Which together. Which is very challenging, by the way. Yeah, no, I mean- Seclusion has its, has its upsides and its downsides, but go ahead. Seclusion, but working together. Also, mm-hmm. we run a business right. together, you know, and right. our, you know, our, our couples therapist thinks we're nuts <laughs> for doing all of this. But at the same time, it's a crucible for really working out and ironing out uh, communication skills so that things don't go off the rails. Um, one of the things that's been challenging for me, and I have even really fresh insight around why it's challenging, but one of the things that's been challenging is as we merge, she also has two teenage sons uh, one's now 20 one's 18 they're both in college now but for two years the the youngest one was finishing high school with us and that's a tricky dynamic mm-hmm. to, to merge households or to merge personalities um under best of times and often what would happen whether there, there'd be some behavior whether it was leaving dishes, leaving lights on, leaving the door open, leaving things, clothes all over the place. Um, There was some behavior that would would irritate me, really irritate me. And then I would craft a story around it that this this is obviously due to a deficiency in the way this child was taught or raised. Mm -hmm. And so so you can hear how that goes into a poisonous judgment against Mm -hmm. my partner. 
Um, and then when I would speak to her about it, uh, I would come in, you know, just riding on the coattails of that judgment. Things didn't go so well. <laughs> Things wouldn't go so, so well. So it was, you felt in you a condemnation of both the son and the son's mother, basically, right? Yeah, but, you know, in a cooler state, a, I could, a criticism, I, a, a critical yeah, judgment. Hyper, I could be hypercritical. But feeling, you know, and this is what one of the commentators or one of the people that emailed you wrote about, with like feeling a righteousness. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit like the, this is the last chance we have while they're in high school, while he's in high school to really plant some seeds of higher consciousness in him to, to be more aware, to be more self-aware. And so it's that there's more of the irony that I'm trying mm -hmm. to get, you know, want, want her to get him to be more self-aware, but being pretty unaware about how I'm communicating that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you mean you weren't, you weren't sufficiently aware of how, uh, how defensively she would react to criticism. I mean, did you make these criticisms explicit? Like, yeah. you know, if you had raised this kid better. Uh, by the way, my advice, I'm not a professional couples counselor. Never start a sentence with the words, if you had raised this kid better. You know, it, was that the kind of vibe? It wouldn't start there. It would definitely not start there. But it could, <laughs> right. at times it could yeah. get there. And then in the extreme, yeah. like when, when things would go nuclear, mm -hmm. and, and, and it did feel existential at times, it's like, are we going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to keep this going? Are we going to be able to survive here? Um, it, it would get to that pitch. Yeah, I say with shame. But of course, I, at that, at that, yeah, I mean, at that point, you, you know, you're kind of, it's just a challenge to be deliberate and careful in the conversation because at that point, it's just a heated conversation. Um, the, uh, but the, there's, you know, at that point, the intent is almost to hurt. It, it's almost not like you don't understand it's going to hurt him. Of course, you do. You're wielding it as a weapon, right? At that point in the argument, mm -hmm. so it, it's. It's almost, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not sure whether, what, what is the opportunity to exercise cognitive empathy there? I'm just asking myself out loud. I mean, when, in fact, uh, you your feeling at that point is, I mean, we've all been there. You want to harm the person psychologically, right? I mean, you're mad at them. You You want to say something. On the one hand, you believe it, and, and you've, at least you believe it when you're pissed off, right? Like you believe it when you're feeling uncharitable and you've felt it repeatedly, but not articulated it. But part of articulating at that point is in some sense a desire to hurt the person, right? I mean, you're mad. You want to, you want to, you know, there, there, there there's, uh, you know, conversations can escalate into just pure insult, right? Arguments can start out over like with a neighbor over a prop, you know, some issue of, of like, uh, whose tree is this? Who's, you know, is this on your, uh, you know, weren't you supposed to take, it, it can start out with on some factual basis and wind up with, you know, you're always like this, you know, you're, you're blah, blah, blah. So it can escalate into pure insult. And the escalation is a very subtle thing. And maybe judging by your reaction, it's, your facial reaction, it seems to me that you don't agree that you were very far along uh, in this case on the path toward just wanting to cause 
psychological harm to the person you're arguing with. But at some point you get there, right? When you're just hurling insults at someone, I mean, on the one hand, they are grievances and you you may want the person to hear them, but you know what I mean, right? The, yeah, I do. And I, I mean, I would say that the intent to harm was never there. It, it, if you, if you, if you pause me in, in one of these cycles, I might say, I just feel like I have to say this because we need to bring awareness to this problem. See, I would say, if you think that is the full extent of your motivation, maybe you could have used a little more self-awareness at that point. That's just my reading of human psychology, right? Is uh, like um, that there are layers and layers of actual motivation the and the actual motivation is rarely the thing you feel like articulating you know does that make sense yeah well i wasn't even aware of the that's the thing i wasn't even aware of why this was such a thing for me yeah um i mean and 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 i i have more i do have more insight around that it goes into my the, the legs of my past um for one her son, both her sons are are very successful athletes. Uh, the youngest is on a full scholarship at University of Maine, playing baseball, Division One, star pitcher. And what does that have to do with anything? Well, I've recently really remembered and reappraised uh, experiences I had in high school, where I, I realize now that I was more or less bullied chronically for three years by the athletes of the school, like mm-hmm. the, the Goonish gang. Um, and, you know, I touched into how angry that made me, how much rage that instilled in me, mm-hmm. and then how much judgment and bias I have against any of that culture. And so the behavior is that I was getting triggered by was mm-hmm. part of that coming from that culture, but the intent, there was no intention to harm or I mean, it was harmless stuff, but I my react my level of reaction was just totally displaced. Which was harmless? You mean there uh, there was no intention to harm who on whose part? On the, on the son's part. You weren't trying to harm him. I wasn't trying to harm him either. But he wasn't trying to harm me, and I wasn't trying to right. harm him. But right. I was getting I was getting I was taking it like an affront, a personal yeah. affront. So I mean, there's actually I think this there is an example, a specific one. Where last winter, uh, in the middle of the night, I woke up, we both woke up, my partner and I woke up, and the we woke up to the smoke alarm chirping. I hate that. I hate it too. Because <laughs> it can be a long time you can f- before you figure out which smoke alarm it actually is. Right. Came down, we figured out which one it was. But when we came downstairs, the reason why it was smoking was because the internal temperature of the house had dropped down to 40 degrees. The intention, and that happened. That the, the house you need, was, a, you need a stupider smoke alarm. <laughs> that's 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 that alarm is doing too much thinking. But go ahead. Well, no, uh, it, it, I think I when I looked it up. It, it's something about the the cold makes the battery malfunction. So oh, I see. To, I thought that was part of the built-in design. Was it, it? It thought if the house is too cold, something must be wrong. But but anyway, go ahead. Uh, well, it is it is telling you the battery won't work when it's too cold. But the reason why it was so cold drum roll was because the door of the house to the garage was open and the door of the garage bay one of the bays of the garage door and who had left those doors open josh exactly we know who it was bob was it your partner 
No. Was it you? Was it the son? Who was it? It was the young fellow, the son. Oh, God, that's intolerable. But listen, it, the story's not over. So, <laughs> but when I say I got triggered, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a mindfulness yoga guy. I could feel my body get tighter, right. <laughs> hot guitar string instantly. I mean, it was, I seized up like I, I've only seized up once or twice in my life. That I could did, barely, I could barely walk. Did that not allow you to intervene and stop the process of, of murdering the, well, now, I, again, I what so the, the the context though is the son had a friend over that night, and the deal was kill them before, both, man. That's we, what I would have done before we went to bed. We told them when Gus leave, when the friend leaves, shut the door, close the garage door, etc. Yeah. What happened? And and this is after I already did verbally blame the son for leaving the door open. Mm-hmm. He said, Is that a euphemism? Verbally blamed? <laughs> if we if we heard the verbal blame, would we think that more uh, colorful adjectives were in order? Um, I actually wrote about this. I, I put it into a Dharma talk once. And by my recollection, see, sometimes when I get really angry, um, an Irish accent, accent slips out of me, an, an Irish way of speaking, just because I spent time over in Ireland when I was in university. Mm. Um, and so I said... Do you realize you're after leaving the door open? That's funny. But I was, but I, it was the way I said it. Yeah. It was like the finger of blame was there. But then he said, and he was pretty calm about it. He said, I'm so sorry. We fell asleep. And you said, yeah, you know why you fell asleep? <laughs> no. What did you say? I just said, I, I, well, it interrupted my, my whole narrative of blame because he had fallen asleep. And he never let his friend out. So he didn't, he wasn't involved in leaving the, touching the door. He never touched the door. So the reason the door was open, because of the wind. The wind did it. So what, what bias, Bob, what bias did I fall prey to? You tell me. Uh, The, uh, well, I guess what, confirmation bias or, or, uh, and or attri- attribution, attribution error. Error. yeah those are the two leading candidates always i'm just thinking um yeah so you because you were saying uh what well the door the openness of the door is a reflection of your character and in fact it was a reflection of the wind uh circumstance right. all there was was some, like you know in, in a kind of a, a buddhist analysis where there's just there was raw sensation of intense cold <laughs> winter mm-hmm. wind blowing through the downstairs of the house um a fear around pipes freezing but there was this raw sensation and then the way that i was became certain of a certain narrative being true mm-hmm. um yeah that's a classic you know it's a classic thing i mean we've all been there uh and and the and the, the purpose of uh I mean, it gets back to what I was saying about how can, in what senses can self-awareness, we'll leave aside cognitive empathy, in what senses can self-awareness kind of help you stop uh, the cycle of escalation before it gets out of hand? Um, And one of them is, uh, you know, what you involves what you mentioned which is surely being aware of the process of of the feelings that are arising 
that are kind of warning signs, right? I mean, I remember uh, the after my first meditation retreat, and only a couple of days afterwards, so I was still really kind of in the zone. And one of my, at that point, young daughters did something that made me want to chastise her or yell at her or something. And I just remember feeling the urge to do it rise up and observing the urge and just saying, no, nah, I don't think I will. And that was like a new feeling uh, it, 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 to, to uh, you know, to have that degree of detachment uh, from, you know, uh, from and reflection on your own feelings. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that's a case of of cognitive empathy per se being facilitated. It's just a case of uh, of the stopping of the spiral that involves uh, diminished cognitive empathy in various ways. It both is a product of it and leads to it uh, can be facilitated by self-awareness, if that makes sense. I mean... And, and yeah. being able to put your hand on the brake or put your foot on yeah, the brake. Yeah, yeah. Is an I would say is an essential prerequisite for the activity of cognitive empathy to to flow. If if you're not able if I mean if you yeah. can't tra tra if you can't track your internal state. Yeah. and know yourself when things are getting to the point of escalation in terms of sensation. Yeah. You won't be able to play the edge of 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 being a good communicator, right? You know, because as we said, it is uh, there is this just positive feedback cycle by which uh, you know antagonism makes cognitive empathy harder, and that in turn you know just makes it harder to consider the perspective of the other pe person and come up with with reasons why they did something you don't like other than they're just a terrible person uh and then you know the harder it is to exercise the cognitive empathy the more pissed off you get the more pissed off you get the harder it gets to exercise cognitive empathy you know and then the extreme cases is, is is at a geopolitical level is war i mean you know if you look at how two enemies process information about each other it's just for a while it's just out of control there's no hope you know well, I made a note somewhere that um, th it's the theme of the security dilemma at the at domestic scale. Yeah. So the security dilemma is the the, the idea from political science, from international relations specifically, that that well, something it involves is perceiving actions that are intended uh, defensively as offensive. I mean, I'm I'm actually just writing a piece right now about. Uh, uh, a, a memo written uh, by the ambassador to Russia in 2008, warning, kind of implicitly warning against extending uh, NATO uh, membership to Ukraine. And he was talking about the Soviet uh, foreign minister, a Russian foreign minister, uh, Lavrov. Um, you know, first of all, saying, you know, you got to recognize we see you may see NATO as a defensive alliance. We see it as a threat. And. That can that can mean two things. I mean, in this case, uh, Lavrov said that doesn't mean we think you mean it offensively. 
But it means that, you know, we have no idea who's going to be president of America in 20 years, in 10 years, and what they might do with Ukraine if it's NATOized, right? So that's one version of the security dilemma where they Russia felt they saw something that maybe was intended defensively, but they perceived it as a, as an offensive threat. Um, in in that case, it wasn't really a misreading of intentions. But but what you're talking about, uh, it, you know, it was more precautionary than a misreading of current intentions. But what you're talking about is uh, is a flat out misreading of attention. Somebody says something, and you take it as offensive when they don't mean it that way. Of course, one complication here is we're we're often not in touch with the fact that we actually mean things offensively when we don't consciously, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like I was saying, at some point in an argument, you want to harm the person, right? You want them to feel psychological pain. You've it, It's become a weaponized conversation, but you may not be reflecting, you may not be thinking that, uh, but and yet it can be true. I don't know. This is I'm going to stop talking now. I'm thinking so many things about this. But anyway, your point is your point is that uh, especially amid hostility, but even amid kind of uh, just incipient tension, it can be easy to read something as aggressive, offensive that is not meant that way. Yes, and um, and that was one of the insights that I've come to in couples therapy mm-hmm. uh, in sort of my partner and I do this on our own, but we've also done it in, in, in with, with the help of a therapist, but it's, and it's something I mentioned with you to you before around an exercise, of reflective dialogue, reflective mm-hmm. communication where one person says something, the other person listens after the first person speaks, the second person reflects back what they heard, mm-hmm. paraphrasing it to the satisfaction of the first speaker mm-hmm. before something else is is, is uh, said. And in doing that, and, and really sort of doing a postmortem on some of the conflicts and, and really sort of analyzing it frame by frame, like a, in a movie kind of directorial way. What, what, so it did, from point A to point B in the, in the dynamic, what was going on there? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What was I thinking? What was I feeling? How was I interpreting? How are you interpreting? Going through that, it becomes clear again and again that, you know, size, subtle eye rolls, you know, grimaces of the face, a frantic rubbing of the head or whatever it is. There's body language, there's verbal signals that do get interpreted incorrectly. Uh-huh. Get they I I know my partner will say she's feeling more defensive. She's just trying to speak, take care of herself. I experience it as an aggression, vice versa. Um, but it's that 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 feed feedback loop in the in the in the escalation. Yeah. I mean and, and again, I mean, I, I let me try to do a slightly better job of articulating what I had said. Is a complication here is that uh, there is such a thing as passive aggressive behavior, right? And and various related things. I mean, there is such a thing as having more aggressive intent than the formal meaning of of your words would suggest. Because I know I do that with my wife. I know for sure that I say. Uh, did you do X when I mean K? 
God damn it, you did X again. Or do you know who did X? even worse? Do you know how this happened? Do you know how the door got left open when you're thinking, God damn it, you're the one who left the door open, right? Um, so this is one thing that makes it a very complicated landscape. Reading the intentions of others is that um, intention itself is such a slippery concept. I mean, you know, we all may may indeed have aggressive agendas that we're at best dimly aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I, that, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that 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 needs to be part of the question of of how we cultivate self awareness is what are the limits of self awareness? What what are we just don't have access to? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where, well, quite frankly, you know, I had done a lot of meditation practice. And I would say a lot of my practice was internally, I in, I was in, it's kind of a, a, a bubble of isolation. And I don't mean like I was living on a retreat all the time, but my practice was insular in the sense that it was something I did in private. Mm-hmm. And it was only, it had, I feel like it's only been in the, in the light of this particular relationship that I've had to apply my practice in relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, And so there's a way that, I have come to a new level of awareness, self-awareness through the reflection I get back from my partner and vice versa. But, you know, the Trumpa had the line, like next to your guru, your, your partner is your greatest teacher. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it just gets, speaks to the, this, this idea that through the dial, through a, through an interpersonal relationship, you will, that the, the, the relationship will mirror yourself back to you in a way that you can't do on your own. You simply can't do on your own. Yeah. So certain, so certain things can't be worked out unless they're worked out in the living. Um, they can't be worked out kind of in the abstract. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. Um, and I think, you know, I do think uh, it's funny. On the one hand, I, I do think that uh, you know a pretty serious mindfulness practice can uh, make you better at fathoming kind of your own motivation make you more aware when you say do you know who left the door open that there's a deeper agenda there and that actually you have a grievance and you've already decided who left the door open and and so on i think mindfulness can make you more aware of of kind of your hidden agenda and i think that's a very constructive thing if you act on the information uh at the same time, mindfulness carried far enough will lead you into a different paradigm in terms of how you're thinking of the self, right? Where it it's not like there's a you that has the agenda. It's more like there are these various things floating around in your sphere of confidence that are generating various feelings that lead to various things and so on. Uh, so there's, there's that kind of irony that we alluded to at the beginning, I guess, mm-hmm. that, that uh, concept of self ultimately becomes slippery. Um, but I, well, but do you agree with me that 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 uh, mindfulness can it, it can help you uh, become aware when you're uh, you know when you've got a more hostile agenda than you may have otherwise been admitting to yourself? Yeah, that's become very clear. Yeah, but and I would say that the key to that for me has been the somatic the somatics of it. Yeah, meaning what? Meaning just being much more uh, dialed into the physical state, primarily from the neck to my pelvis, Mm -hmm. what's going on there. And 
um, learning how to interpret the, the 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 data that I get from that that sensation. Mm-hmm. And I know now because I mean, one of the things that kept coming back to me in, in the in the couples therapy was, um, like the therapist would say, "It's not what you say; it's how you say it." So even when you said something like, "Were you aware that you left the door?" or "You you did you not put the?" Yeah. Do you know who didn't put the the dish away? Yeah. There maybe this. It's 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 not so much the words itself. There's the the affect and the emotion that's coming mm-hmm. with the words that I think is 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 part of the murkier context in which the the conflict can can whip up. Yeah. But I do think. Yeah. I mean, your question was, does mindfulness help 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 that? I would say it it's a first step to knowing what's going on internally. And there's a there's a there's a kind of a contemporary form of therapy. I guess it's been around since the 80s. I looked it up this morning. Um, called ACT. It's acceptance commitment therapy. And it one of the key features of it is it doesn't at all try to, to diminish symptoms. So whatever symptom the person's experiencing, they don't try to diminish it. It first is involves bringing mindful awareness to it so that it can be accepted. Uh-huh you know, maybe fully acknowledged, but then the commitment part of it is by accepting the way it is, the person, the individual would then commit to internally generated values or externally generated, maybe not internally, but just values, values that they, that they align with Mm -hmm. Um, rather than, you know, for example, you know, in the examples we've been using, when I, if I would speak in a way that was too judgmental, that's not really, you know, in a way, a manner of communication that's in aligned with my, the values of my higher angels, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and that's been a, uh, I think, an interesting piece that I had not really integrated in my practice for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so many, uh, so many parts to this. Uh, the uh, I don't know. Where, I don't. I don't know. I don't know where to go. Uh, it, it's uh, you know, there's so many different dynamics that can be kind of happening in a in a relationship, including kind of implicit attempts to renegotiate, just renegotiate, you know, and. And 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 one's sense of entitlement and power can change. I just thought I just thought of this is neither here nor there. It's just a, it's just an interesting and weird document. Have you ever have you ever read that brutal letter that Einstein wrote to his wife? No. Well, it, it's like he's become this famous guy, and I think he's a, he's got some other woman he's interested in. But in those days, you didn't get divorced, and it's just like, okay, here's the way it's going to be. You will do this, and that you will do the wash. You will cook my stuff. You you will you, my food. You will do this. You will do that. You'll do that. You will not talk back to me. I mean, I don't know if this is all literal, but it's just a horrifyingly. Um, and uh, I guess give him credit. He's just kind of being honest. He's like, it's like this is you know he's he's all but saying this is what I'm entitled to. I'm like this big powerful guy. You're nobody, and if you want to stick around, this is the way it's going to be. Um, and, you know, often I think, you know, that's a very dramatic, uh, kind of change of power, but, but, you know, bargaining power in some sense or another does change. Um, 
as uh, as people go through. I mean, just for example, a woman having a child can, in a certain sense, reduce her bargaining power. Because if 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 a guy leaves her a month after a child is born, uh, you know, I mean, I think most most guys don't feel like doing that a month after a child is born because they're in love with the child happily. But uh, that's a tough that's a tough position to be in. Right. And um, and uh, so anyway, there's there's. It's all very complicated, and sometimes I think there are these these implicit demands for renegotiation of the contract going on um, when, you know, that's, that's the subtext. And maybe mm-hmm. sometimes it's better just to talk about that, but I don't know. I, look, I'm not a – the last thing I, I would be is a good couples counselor, so I think I'm going to shut up now. Um, but uh, – there, let me, you know, we got, uh, there was a certain amount, there was quite a bit of kind of interesting uh, feedback that uh, we got in in response to my call for feedback. Let me just read a couple of things and see if they, they may or may not have to do with um, uh, couples stuff or even uh, quite with... Uh, Cognitive empathy. Here's the shortest one, possibly from Tim. A comment: Buddhist teachers recommend the value of concent- concentration practices to complement insight and compassion. In my experience, con- concentration practice helps me develop deeper insight into myself and others. I'm wondering what you think about that, uh, Josh. I mean, uh, concentration. Is tends to be involved in various kinds of meditation, certainly including mindfulness. But in concentration meditation, per se, you really stick with that part of it. You focus on the one thing. It's like the one time I had just a psychedelic level, mystical, whatever kind of wild experience through meditation. Um, it was through focusing on the breath really intensively and sticking with it, and and and. And not then, you know, with mindfulness practice or insight meditation, which is closely related to mindfulness, um, you might focus on something long enough to establish a kind of, you know, kind of calm and equanimity that allows you to better observe all the things going on in your body, in your mind, whatever. And then you do that, right? But with pure concentration meditation, you know more about this than I do, I think. I mean, at least you've done more of this kind of stuff. Um you know, you stick with the concentration. So that's the distinction that, that Tim is referring to uh, between kind of insight meditation and, and concentration meditation. But what is your feeling about the role of concentration? I mean, do you see it mainly as kind of a table setter for insight, the way I've described it? Or I think you're you're presenting it the way it is often presented, that there's a kind of a progression. That, that a novice meditator will be told to focus and concentrate on objects like the breath or a mantra mm-hmm. or, or a body sweep even, and to come back to that experience again and again every time the mind drifts and wanders. And um, and then, you know, in the context of Vipassana or insight meditation, that there's a sort of a often named a requisite level of steadiness of presence that's required before someone can really succeed at seeing experience, seeing phenomena, 
more clearly seeing the impermanent nature, the unsatisfactory nature, the non-self nature of all experience. So I think that in in my own framing of it, I don't necessarily see them as um, all that divergent that, that they, that they kind of, the the word for concentration or uh, tranquility practice in, in Pali is shamatha. Sometimes you're told to do shamatha meditation and then do vipassana. I kind of see them working in parallel or in, or in, in a kind of a in an integrated way of mm-hmm. shamatha vipassana together because my and this is what I think the um, the commenter might be getting at is that you can't do in concentration practice without gaining insight about yourself because the first insight you get is that your mind is not under your control the way you might perceive it or imagine it to be you know it becomes you be, you become disabused of your the own your, the power of your own agency very mm-hmm. quickly and that's an insight that's a valuable insight yeah um but there's a, there's another point that um that i think also connects uh a yoga or embodiment practice to the development of concentration or or i would say the development of samadhi so but by focusing, by doing a concentration practice, the the outcome. So what what's the? You, there are three terms you've used. Vipassana is insight. Yep. Uh, to see clearly is trans, right. one of the translations. Right. Shamatha is often translated as, as tranquility. As, yeah. Yeah. Or, Go ahead. Or calm abiding. Uh-huh. Um, and samadhi is. I mean, people actually use these terms differently, so it can, can get a little confusing. But samadhi is the way I look at it is it's the it's a it's the experience of a unification of your being. Uh-huh. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean you're 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 uh, kind of alienated from sensory experiences. Like you still hear birds chirping, you still hear cars honking, you still feel your body. But there's a unification of being that's often characterized by an internal calm and clarity. Mm -hmm. And I would say from my sense of it, my experientially, but also from studying around around this stuff, there's a spectrum of these samadhi states. Mm -hmm. Some are very, very deep and kind of on on the, on the, on the range of what you're describing in your, your semi-hallucinogenic state on that retreat. Um, But in terms of it's the, the function of samadhi within the development of wisdom one of the ways I conceive of it is that when you access samadhi, when you really feel what you can feel kind of reliably with a yoga practice, and um, I would say it develops in meditation too, but when you access that calm, that internal state of calm clarity, it becomes a reference point for when you're not in that state. So mm-hmm. meaning sometimes like my own default was was a very I, it's taken me years to see this but i was wound and, and programmed from conditions in life to be exceptionally anxious and that, that had a, a whole tone of of uh, somatic correlate in my body it was only when i started doing yoga and kind of temporarily cleared that anxiety out of my system for a moment or two for or for an hour after class that I started to realize how my default was so kind of tightly wound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's unusual to feel a lot of anxiety. But you, uh, but but yeah, I I I have not through yoga, but through meditation, have had somewhat similar experience. I think of of the the more careful awareness of it 
helping. Um, let me do quickly a couple of other things. Uh, commenter whose name is Gamp quotes Mrs. Harris. Okay. Uh, uh, says, I'm coming at the whole cognitive empathy thing with disadvantage. I've never been interested in literature. Is, 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 this, is this my wife? It sounds like my wife. This may be my wife. No, I don't think it's my wife. But she is. she has accused me of not uh, being interested as interested in literature as she would like. I mean, I've read novels, but it's true uh, that, as this commenter says, quote, and novels, and to a lesser extent, short stories and plays have been the great force for cognitive empathy since the 1800s. I think there's actually been some kind of documentation of this, or somebody enlisted this in an argument, the role that novels played in making uh, people aware, especially of the way uh, perspectives may differ in different cultures and so on. I, I, I plead guilty. Different, different class that. too, right? Yeah, different. Yeah, classes within societies, um, and so on. Um, Brian Schmarian. Okay, before yeah. you go to Brian Schmarian, um, I mean, I don't know if the commenter got on got at this, but just the act of reading a novel. I would argue is an is an is a kind of exercise or training in cognitive empathy because it it, it in, invites the reader to adopt the perspective of the protagonist or a character or this or, or a situation and see how conditions conspire so that the character acts one way or another. You know, so there's mm-hmm. there's there's that in the in the mix. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I'd say there's lots of ways to nurture cognitive empathy, um, and. Uh... You know, I just uh, 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 when I'm not reading novels, I could read more novels, but sometimes I'm doing things like watching documentaries about foreign about different cultures and and things or watching movies or actually reading things that actual people have said. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to to nurture uh, cognitive empathy. So I'm going to I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over the way I'm allocating my time. I certainly grant that all of these technologies, I mean, a novel is kind of technology, have played a role in broadening the potential range of cognitive empathy, both, you know, within a society and across societies. But I would say that all kinds of things have. Video has, you know, audio has, um, uh, journalism, and so on. Um, so, uh, Ryan Schwein just says, observes the anger comes first and the reasoning comes second. Uh, I'll just leave that there because it's, uh, speaks to so much of what we've already said. Thank you, Brian. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, Martin S is one of the people who, who mentions this idea that as a, you know, that self-awareness can, can help writes a few years of contemplative practice have convinced me that the best starting point is to develop and practice cognitive empathy towards oneself. I mean, in a way, uh, I guess in a way, mindfulness is cognitive empathy towards itself, right? Um, I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, that's somebody else brought up the relationship between stories. Now, was that one of the comments or one of the emails? Uh, you you saw uh, all of them. I think it was in um, in one of the it emails. Was Kyle Kyle's email. It was Kyle's um, email who was talking about. Chris Ardress's ladder of inference. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. There was a sentence I wanted to kind of drill down on in that uh, email from Kyle. I have to be able to 
It seems like having something that is truly cognitive empathy or perspective taking means that I have to be able to separate out my own external stimuli so I can see the ex external stimuli others are experiencing apart from the story we attach to it. Now, that's true, and I think consistent with a lot we've said, that, that in other words, you have to try to let go of the story you're attaching to what they're doing. Uh, but at the same time, um, you can't let go of the story they're attaching to it. Uh, in, in other words, understanding the story they're attaching to uh, their motivation is cognitive empathy, right? I mean, I mean that that's that's kind of the 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 thing that makes me a little reluctant to sign on to any straightforward, simple rendering of the idea that understanding the self is the same as understanding the other person. I mean, I think understanding the self can, in various ways, be conducive to it, but 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 this is the big difference. It seems to me that if you really want to deeply understand yourself, you have to let go of the stories uh, that you're attaching to your own motivation and take a deeper look at, at what's actually going on in there. Uh, whereas um, you, you don't want to, I mean, doing that with them would be kind of a mixed blessing because job one in understanding the perspective is understanding the story they're attaching to things. That's kind of what it is to understand their perspective. It's mm -hmm. like, uh, does Putin see Ukraine as part of Russia? Well, if he does, we need to understand that. You know, that's if that's part of his motivation, we need to understand that. Would a more mindful Putin let go of that? Maybe, but that's not the one we're dealing with. So there's there's this irony. I mean, that that's the, the kind of, a, a certain kind of asymmetry I see between understanding yourself better and understanding other people better. The, the, I think a goal or, or part of the process of understanding yourself more and more deeply is to let go of some of the stories, let go of stories generally, ideally, maybe. Um, Whereas in a way, you don't want to do that with other people because the stories are mo are motivating them. They haven't let go of them yet, right? Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it it does. And, and, and I'm going to, so you, the asymmetry you're finding is that internally when you're cultivating self-awareness i'm hearing you say we're trying to let go of our stories mm -hmm. but when we're exercising cognitive empathy with others we're trying to understand their story right yeah and That's you the, want and you want the, to yeah yeah you want to so another a way i would approach that is that the the self-awareness piece isn't all that different in that Letting go of the story doesn't mean you're getting rid of the story. Mm -hmm. And there's another whole form of therapy called internal family systems, which is very simpatico with Buddhist practice and philosophy. My own therapist, first therapist who was a Buddhist teacher, was was very much taken by this 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 form of psychotherapy. But the the basic premise is that our internal world is not made up of one unilateral self the internal world is a is a multiplicity of selves mm -hmm. and those internal selves are parts of us they're called parts in the, in the system the internal parts have their own narratives they have their own fears they have their own roles and functions mm -hmm. within our co broader sense of self and so the but the what's interesting about the therapeutic model 
is that the individual begins a dialogue process with these internal parts. Mm -hmm. And I would say the main part of that process is to develop cognitive empathy with the part. So what is the part's name? What is the part's role? Mm -hmm. What part, what is it? Fun and, and understanding it, core self, the sense of awareness and the curious, aware, engaged, connected self is able to a unblend from being fused with that right. part to see it. And then to, in a sense, over time, unburden the part from its maladaptive role. Right. And so, but in doing that, when you do it with yourself, it's it's not a big leap to start doing it with another person. So, it, and this gets to what other well, people. Well, what mentioned. is doing it with another person? Well, so this is. I don't know if this is the same. I mean, what is doing it with another person consist of? I mean, first of all, it's harder. You're not in their head. Uh, but what does the threat is the dialogue? It's the it's the it's the way of communicating with the internal part or right. with an, with another person. See, this oh, is and this, this is what I mean about the yeah. the idea of cognitive empathy as an activity. I think it requires skills in communication, massive skills in communication. I needed a massive, and I continue to upgrade it, but a massive upgrade in my communication skills, which are very limited prior to this. Yeah, I mean, you're not always in communication with a person you're trying to understand. I don't. I will never talk to Vladimir Putin, but it's in my interest to understand what motivates him. But but go ahead. Yeah, I, it can it can be a big help if you are in communication with that person. Yeah. And sometimes it's somebody you are in communication with, but they're very there are real limits on what you're allowed to say. Like if it's a boss, you know, um, and and so on. But uh, yeah, I agree that that's an that's an asset. And in the kinds of things we're talking about, like uh, you know, relationships of a personal kind, should be that option should be available. Yeah. Well, and yeah, there was another person who wrote in about finding. Cognitive empathy was helping with them, helping them with online dating. Uh huh. You know, and just it was, and I and what I took from that share was that that it was the the ability to more understand somebody whether whether the relationship worked out, whether the date led into a relationship, or they just they parted as friends. Um, the 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 direction it moved was a better direction because of the cognitive empathy of of the of the of the increase of of understanding between the two parties. Yeah. Um. The, the there's a w just one more thing on this subject is that I think sometimes when people say and this may I may be talking about somebody who who actually mentioned this I'm not sure but uh, when they say that you know awareness of what's going on in your own mind can make you more empathetic to the other person I think sometimes they actually don't mean cognitive empathy so much as emotional empathy and a kind of uh, almost forgiveness. In other words, you see what's driving you toward irrational anger or this or that or that, and you see how it happens. And then you see somebody else who seems irrationally angry and you go, well, like all of us, they're just victims. I mean, you know, there's this shit going on in their head. They don't totally understand it. And this one part of of the the self is in control right now. It's happened to all of us. Uh, I can relate to that, and therefore I'm more uh, forgiving of that. Uh, now, again, I'd say that's not exactly the same as cognitive empathy because 
That's not the way they're looking at it. They're looking at it as if they have a right to be angry and on and on. And, and you need to understand that. And it seems to me understanding that is, is the first and maybe core part of cognitive empathy. And, and when we say that understanding the way, uh, you know, anger happens within ourselves makes us more empathetic to them. I think sometimes what we mean is it, it makes us more emotionally empathetic to them more forgiving of them and so on. And that has a value too, but I think there's a subtle kind of distinction there, if that, if that uh, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, being aware of one's own internal state and how, you know, something like anger or judgment or criticism might arise. Mm -hmm. In Buddhist terms, what I hear you describing is wisdom. When some, when someone understands the conditional nature of mm -hmm. their state. That's not right. because they're they're you know wired hardwired one way. It's just that the conditioned nature of their state is such that in that moment the factors that give rise to anger are strongest. Yeah. Right. And so that wisdom of understanding how that the, a, a, some a state like anger will arise when you see it external. If you can see it in yourself. You know that the other person is 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 uh, held within the grip of the, those conditions that are present within them. Right. Right. Yeah, and there's there's totally value in that. Deepa, well, and it, it but it speaks to what I think one of the main impediments to cognitive empathy is the projection of essential characteristic or trait on the other or on oneself. So essentialism, perception of essentialism is is the enemy of cognitive empathy on in some levels, right? In, in a way, I mean, essentialism is something you have to be, you know, kind of drill down on. But I, but I mean, in a way, we're talking about attribution error when, you know, if it's somebody, if it's an enemy and they do something bad, you're more inclined to attribute, attribute it to their fundamental disposition as opposed to saying, well, circumstances conspired to make them behave like an asshole in this particular case. With enemies, we tend to go for the first explanation, like they're just an asshole. They are essentially an asshole. It's like their essence to be an asshole. And that's why they do bad things. And I would say in that sense, yeah, one of the impediments to cognitive empathy is indeed essentialism. Uh, and and attribution error encourages it in the case of enemies and rivals who who do bad things. Um, so yeah, I, I I think you know there's a whole deeper. I mean, we don't have time to get into uh, the whole Buddhist philosophical view on essence on 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 seeing essence in things, but uh, I would say that's different but related. Uh, but but to what to what I just said. But, um, yeah, I, I agree that uh, viewing people as essentially anything is usually a mistake. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then I, again, I'm, st I'm just trying to art articulate or identify the, the hurdles to cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether if you're really triggered, really, really aroused, you're really angry. If you're seeing an essence, if you're victim to attribution error. It, it it makes it so much harder to, it, at least on an interpersonal level, ask the question, speak in a way, communicate in a way that will establish the bridge of that. You know, the, the um, 
I, I can't remember if I've shared this with you before, but the, the late Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck, used to describe in her book, um, Everyday Zen or Nothing Special, one of them, uh, she compared human beings to ice cubes, like frozen pattern. Have you heard this one? Have I gone this? I don't on this so. before? Okay. So she says, you know, a, a human being is, is basically a frozen ice cube of habit patterns. So mm-hmm. what she meant. And when one ice cube slides into another ice cube, chips will fly. But she compares practice to bringing the light of of, of the sun, light of aware, warmth of awareness to the ice cube, and the ice cube starts to melt. Mm-hmm. And um, she says, you know, full enlightenment might be the ice cube becomes a, a puddle, a complete puddle. But even without full enlightenment, and this is sort of the the incremental form of enlightenment that you advocate, I hear you advocating, even with a little bit of practice or a consistent practice, the, 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 the ice cube starts to melt, a puddle forms. And then the magic is that when another ice cube comes in contact with the puddle, what happens? It starts to melt as well. Right. Right. And, and I say that because, you know, I know I've fallen into this trap. Mm. I'm not going to be cognitive empath- empathic if you're not going to be cognitive empathic. Right, right. Well, it's but, the flip side of the positive, the, the pernicious positive feedback cycle we talked about, right? Yeah. It's like that's like two ice cube, two puddles making each other ice cubes, kind of. And this is the reverse, right? Does this that is make the reverse. Sense? Yeah. And what, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that, um, and, and this gets back to Kyle's, one of his uh, points that I think we should get into, which is around a simple yeah. set of mental habits. He, you know, he ticks off things that building a capacity for cognitive empathy would require. One mm-hmm. being understanding the difference between external stimuli and our narrative in our mind. So that's the story and the stimuli problem. Uh, two, a proper context setting of the role of emotion in the process. Great. Three, a basic understanding of both attribution and confirmation error. Great. Then he says, four, a simple set of mental habits that we do on a daily basis around easy cognitive empathy activities. I think as a, as the bigger moments will eventually arise and challenge those um, mm-hmm. those those habits. So it's like practicing it um, so that so that when there is you know a, a larger uh, conflagration, you you have some wherewithal and skill in navigating it when in, 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 during easier times. Um, I. I've really noticed a difference when, you know, I, I went home for the holidays. I hadn't seen some, one of my sisters in a couple decades, mm. long history of, of conflict there. Just being able to reflect back what the other person's saying, maybe or maybe not contributing anything beyond that. I just found it, it goes a long way to diffusing mm. that, the, that, the, the escalation potential. You mean just saying, uh, so you're saying that, is this what you mean? Not the sentence that way. So, yeah. so you're saying that, or so you mean that? Oh, so so I get it. So you 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 yeah. Uh huh. And did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Approaches the question. Um, that's interesting. So, um, and and look, there are plenty of opportunities for to be reminded to try to exercise cognitive empathy if. If you treat every time you're annoyed by something anyone does, even somebody online, even somebody on TV, as an opportunity to step back and say, okay, why did they do this thing that annoyed me? And just take your best shot 
at that. Like, what were they thinking? What motivates them and so on? Um, you know, then you'll, if nothing else, get a lot of practice because there's, if you're like me, there's a lot of things people do to annoy you. So look, Josh, we've been talking about this for more than an hour. Uh, we should probably wind it up for now. There's plenty to still talk about. There's more that uh, that people uh, said we got, uh, that that we that was very valuable. I mean, I think I, I benefited from everything people said, either in the comment section or via email. I encourage them to to continue to use those avenues to talk about this stuff. You know, the comment section in the newsletter. Uh, there's always a newsletter uh, post associated with these podcasts that people can go to. And again, the comments are for paid subscribers, but anyone can email us at uh, nonzero.news at gmail.com. And if you put cognitive empathy in the subject heading, it will find its way to the appropriate place. Uh, before we go, I wanted to give you a chance to say anything else you want to say about your own situation, because I think I've once again proven that couples counseling is not what I, I was put on this planet to do. I don't, I don't, you know, but, but, um, so I, I, I don't, I don't um, feel like I, I, I mean, I doubt you came here seeking my wisdom anyway. It was, I, 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 I think you were sharing things about your situation for the benefit of our viewers and listeners. And I'm sure they did benefit, but is there anything else you want to say? Anything um, about that? Uh, or not, necessarily, not yeah. necessarily so much on the, on the, on the side of like relationship work or couples therapy um it's more i just i i I really am a fan of your what what you're doing and i i mean it's the idea of that we you've used before this idea of self-care to maybe world care Hmm. um that what's good for the individual is good for the collective and um I think the, the main thing I want to I, I'm trying to express is that uh, mindfulness practice or meditation practice, spirituality in general, can be used in a way that is not necessarily um, oriented in the direction of greater integration and health. There's a there's a whole move uh, you know concept of spiritual bypassing where people. Like you said, we said you said at one point in the in the beginning, you know, people that come to practice are usually coming because their life isn't necessarily going the way they want right. it to go. So they're kind of struggling with stuff. But in terms of what they're struggling with, they often can use the practice, and I did myself, to go around the pain, to go mm-hmm. around the difficulty, to go around the unfinished business. When when really the 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 movement of the practice, the heart of it, goes mm-hmm. into and faces the difficulty, um, and and I think. I think that's what's exciting now, you know, in 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 Western Buddhism, Western spirituality in general, how to take and integrate the best forms of practice, the best forms of therapy, the best models. And this is what I'm interested in. You're, what you're doing is like, what is your model for not just naming and articulating the the, the role and function of cognitive empathy, but a practice form? Like, I, I mean... One thing I, I should get out is uh, you're 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 aware of mindfulness-based stress reduction, right? Yeah, J- John Kabat-Zinn's work. So that's sort of mindfulness 1.0. Then Danny Goldman and uh, the guy at 
Google, you know, they came up with emotional intelligence and the guy at Google, uh, I forget his name now, but he, he wrote a book, Search Inside Yourself, Combining Mindfulness and Emotional Intelligence for Leadership Development. Um, I think there's a case for mindfulness 3.0 or 4.0 or something like that, which, is, which you're getting at around how does the practice specifically get tailored to strengthen this capacity? Cognitive empathy. Mm. Cognitive empathy. But I think it, it you know, I, you mentioned before we, we started taping, you're going to be speaking, or should I say this, who you're going to Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be uh, talking to Gabor Mate, um, Gabor. Uh, or Mate, maybe uh, he pronounces it, um, the, the, uh, about his, his um, well, his, his latest book, but he's for some time focused on the role of trauma in various things, including addiction. And that's one thing uh, in the latest book. What is the book called? The myth of it's like the myth of normal or something, right? It's like, but that's not the name. I'll find it quickly. That but anyway, like, go ahead. What were you going to what were you going to say? Well, just that that I think trauma is involved as a as a as a roadblock or hurdle to cognitive empathy and working with trauma is going to involve the body uh-huh. so some sort of body practice or body awareness um body care goes a long way to to rewiring faulty connections that short circuit the cognitive empathy capacity yeah the uh it turns out the book is called the myth of normal so i got one right um yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to the conversation because I'm a little bit of a <laughs> trauma skeptic, you might say, oh, uh, or I don't I don't know how to put it, but uh, not. It's complicated. I I I I guess maybe it's a I I have kind of a pedantic question about whether trauma is a misleading term for some of the things we call trauma, in, in just in the in the sense that. Uh, Oh, it has to do with the meaning of pathology and and what things are pathology, whether when pathology is an appropriate term and and so on. Uh, there's no point in getting into it now, but uh, I haven't even articulated my questions for him. But I'm looking forward to the conversation, which will be in a in a couple of weeks, a few weeks. Um, so anyway, yeah, all true, and 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 we can get into that uh, at some future date. I I think the role of trauma. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm glad you're uh, on board with the mission of um figuring out this cognitive empathy thing um you know of course i'm writing a book on it and so i have my own uh, have various reasons on it to get clearer on on how you can cultivate it i think you know we agree that mindfulness can play a role and one thing that's become clearer to me in 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 processing this feedback from people and this is why it's been so valuable is that there are different ways that mindfulness can cultivate uh, cognitive empathy. I think I've started out with kind of the most obvious, which is just that if you're more equanimous, less judgmental, um, you and and mindfulness in theory can make you that way, then you'll be probably better at cognitive empathy. But there are these other ways we've talked about uh, that I think uh, a, a mindfulness practice. Um, can can facilitate cognitive empathy. So I hope to hope to understand that more clearly. So, you know, thanks to all the people who 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 uh who wrote in um 
and uh wish I had had time to mention uh everything. Who was it who said that one problem they they uh face is that uh if they tr- want if they're intent on practicing cognitive empathy and uh it's harder to remain part of a group that has a well-defined enemy and i know exactly what you mean um i just wish oh, I could- yeah you know i that was in the back of my tongue is that i've also seen how much we've talked about this before but the conflation between explanation and justification yeah and and i've I've got friends in the IR world and and they they jump down my throat Inter- when I try international to, relations yeah yeah and you know and in even on the domestic level when I try to explain myself it I can often hear that it gets interpreted as a justification for the behavior I'm like I'm not condoning I'm not apologizing for right. it I'm just saying this is why I think I'm doing this crazy thing that's driving you nuts um but it's I mean that, that that's a I don't even know what what would the, be the bias that blinds someone from able to see the distinction between explanation and, and justification. Well, that's a long story I plan to get into in the book, but I think it's just part of human nature that uh, literally part of it's a it's, it's another kind of fallacy that I think is part of human nature that uh, the, the conflation of explaining why someone did something and defending the thing they did. I think those during human evolution were so often one and the same uh, that we kind of our equipment uh, uh, naturally processes things as though they were. Uh, but I I, I, uh, I I don't even totally understand that story myself. By the way, the person's name is Nex, N-E-X, N-I-N-E-K. This was in a comment. And the comment was seeing things through the lens of cognitive empathy has its pros and cons. One of the cons is it becomes really hard to remain active in a group that has an, a quote enemy. And then he goes on or he or she goes on to talk about a a group they're part of that's uh, involved in a lawsuit. Anyway, that's what I was looking for. So we should, uh, we should go, but thank you for being part of this. Thanks for sharing, as they say, which you, which you, you did to, uh, a really commendable extent. You did more sharing than I did. Maybe it'll be my turn next time. Hey, but I'll, I'll have to get my wife's permission. <laughs> I'm hoping she'll refuse to give it. Uh, so thank you, Josh. Thank you, Bob. Great we to see should, you. We should return to all this. I'll let you you get back to the various uh, challenges associated with thoroughly fusing one's personal and professional life and living in a secluded. <laughs> place while doing it um but uh but thanks could so be much. worse could be worse oh i'm sure it could be a lot worse for all of us okay take care so if you're still here thanks for listening that was certainly a longer episode than normal and because of its length i'm going to keep the ending here short and sweet thanks for practicing i i'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts about cognitive empathy and meditation and mindfulness how mindfulness can help uh actualize or have, have greater access to cognitive empathy, shoot me an email at josh at joshlimmers.net or head over to my uh, website joshsummers.net and join the conversation, join the practice with me and Terry in the Riverbird Sangha. But until next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All my best.